All right, everybody. Welcome to the last session of 2018 Pain Week. Congratulations. We saved the best for last. There's no, there's no shame in that. So um, no administrative housekeeping. Turn on your phones. Be as loud as you can. Disrupt the speaker. If you haven't downloaded the app, you're not going to give any feedback anyway. So um, my two cents. I'm just joking. So I had the pleasure of... Uh, introducing Jared earlier, but this is Unstable Core or Unstable Theories. Our speaker is Jared Hall. He's a clinic director at the Greater Therapy Centers in Fort Worth, Texas. Please help me welcome Jared. Thank you for staying all the way to the end of pain week. Uh, I'm not sure if I got the honor of going last or I got the short end of the stick here. <laughs> but what I will say is that it's been a long week and Vegas is really, it's a tough place to stay multiple days and keep going. <laughs> so I'm going to try to go through this relatively quickly, plus my Fighting Texas Aggies are playing at 4 o'clock, so uh, ESPN game day. So uh, <laughs> we're going to be out of here, all right, guys? Um, I see a couple of familiar faces from the talk that I did like an hour and a half ago, so I'm glad that I didn't run everybody off, and I, I appreciate you guys being here. So I had this bad habit of alluding too much of what I'm going to talk about in my title, all right? Unstable cores or unstable theories. Can anybody take a guess what I might end up saying? So as mentioned before, I have nothing to disclose. Nobody pays me anything. I'm broke. Uh, I have no financial incentives. I'm just here. Learning objectives, right? Learners will review the history of core stability hypothesis. We'll be able to discuss the current evidence. We will explain the current state of the science of pain just, just a little bit. We're going to briefly blip into that as, as if you guys haven't heard it already this week a little bit. And people will, we will review alternative hypotheses of low back pain and alternative explanations for the effectiveness of core stabilization type exercises. So where did the core stability craze come from? Uh, as I mentioned last session, my watch battery died. So the safety word this time when I'm 10 minutes from ending is Jenga block spine. So everybody's going to have to stand up and say Jenga block spine, all right, to let me know when I'm coming to time. Whoa. So. The core stability craze really picked up a lot of steam in the mid-1990s. So in the late 18, uh, 1980s, there was Punjabi and White, who were a group of biomechanical researchers who proposed that spinal stability was mediated through structural functions, mo neuromotor functions, and then muscular strength type control of, of the spine. So then that started to spark a lot of research to look at the function of the deep abdominal muscles and how they might relate to back pain and the control or the stability or the strength of one's spine. So Paul Hodges, who is a phenomenal researcher, very smart gentleman, conducted a study in 1996, right, to look at the changes that might occur in trunk muscles or core muscles, whatever you want to call them, uh, in people that had had pain for a while. So what he did was recruited 30 people, 15 of which had had chronic low back pain for a median time period of eight years, 
and 15 healthy controls. And what they did was implant fine wire EMG recording into the transverse abdominis muscle, the multifidi muscle, the internal and external oblique, and the rectus abdominis. And what they had these people do was stand still and provide them with a visual and auditory stimulus and tell them to raise their arm as fast as they could. And what they wanted to do was measure the function of the muscles when people actually made a voluntary or volitional movement themselves. And they wanted to compare the people with low back pain, chronic low back pain, to healthy controls. So what they found was that there was a 50 millisecond on average, delay in the onset firing of the transverse abdominis, which turned out to be the most crucial 50 milliseconds in rehab history, right? 50 milliseconds is a very, very small amount of time, but what they found was that the transverse abdominis in people with no pain actually preceded the movement of the shoulder, so it was an anticipatory postural control, and that muscle kicked on prior to the movement, but in people with low back pain, on average, it came on after they initiated the movement. So what this led to was the hypothesis that, little statistics jokes for you guys that are still awake. Yeah, we can't trust that guy. <laughs> so what they, what they hypothesized is that altered onset timing or muscle firing patterns of the core muscles, trunk muscles, must be implicated in back pain. So Knowing what we know now, which we're going to get into, this could have been a little bit of putting the cart before the horse, and many other people that are not Paul Hodges and his group are, the, are just as guilty, if not more guilty, for doing a little bit of post-hoc reasoning and taking it and running with it and creating what we know is the core stabilization craze, right? Brace yourselves. Core stabilization's coming, right? This is, this is kind of where this stuff cropped up with Punjabi and White and then the follow-up research of Paul Hodges in 15 people with chronic low back pain and a little bit of post-hoc reasoning, probably. So should we be targeting specific muscle groups or does specificity matter? So what we hypothesize is that the transverse abdominis, due to its anatomic location as a deep core muscle and its finger-like pro like projections that connect to the lumbar fascia, we thought that it must simultaneously contract side to side to increase intra-abdominal pressure to create stability at the spine, right? So that was the whole theory that, oh, well, this spine is unstable if somebody has low back pain because the transverse abdominis isn't actually turning on at the time period that it should, so we're not getting the stability that we need in the low back or in the lumbar spine when we're doing movements. However, some other people did some research after that. Gary Allison, who's a phenomenal researcher, showed was the first person to show that the onset timing of the transverse abdominis being anticipatory is actually side-to-side -side dependent. So if you raise your right arm, your left transverse abdominis will activate prior to the movement, but your right will activate after the movement, and vice versa for the other side. So this completely blew up the notion that the transverse abdominis must contract simultaneously and bilaterally to create stability and increase intra-abdominal pressure to stabilize the spine for movement, right? So the fact that it functions independently and uh, contralaterally really says that its muscle function is a little bit more nuanced than just simply increasing intra-abdominal pressure. So such patterns may be inappropriately maintained during chronic low back pain because they did confirm that, yes, there is a delay 
It does seem like there is a contralateral side delay in the onset firing of the transverse abdominis muscle in those people with back pain. And that they may be maintained in chronic low back pain in high stress situations, resulting in limited variability of movement patterns, which we're going to see a consistent theme here about limited variability in movement. And Marcos just talked extensively in this very same room about limited variability in movement in people that have had pseudo self immobilization with long term pain and, and sensory discriminative changes that happen. So I can't tell you guys anything that you haven't already heard this week. So then we move forward just a little, just a couple of years, and we see that if we actually look at the effect of core stability exercises on the activation of deep abdominal muscles, abdominal muscle onset is largely unaffected by eight weeks of core-focused exercises, and there was no association between onset and low back pain uh, at all with the chain, with the muscle firing patterns. So what that means is that there's large individual variations in activation patterns of deep abdominal muscles, and it's not something that we can hang our hat on for the cause of nonspecific chronic low back pain. Then we move forward, <clears throat> Allison again, same finding. When then we move on again, Ann Mannion, another great researcher, same year, 2012. This is six years ago, right? So this is information that's been out for a long period of time. The European Journal of Spine. Neither baseline lateral abdominal muscle function nor its improvement after a program of stabilization exercises was a predictor of good clinical outcome. So what they found was that a lot of people got better and had less pain with core stabilization type exercises, but they had no change in their muscle firing patterns. And other people didn't get any better, and their muscle firing patterns did change. So it seemed like it was a little bit more complicated than what we had originally thought. So then we move forward. 2014, do changes in transverse abdominis and lumbar multifidus during conservative treatment explain changes in clinical outcomes? This systematic review in the Journal of Pain 2014 highlighted that changes in morphometry or activation of the transverse abdominis following conservative treatments tend to not be associated with any change in clinical outcomes, right? So we're seeing it again consistently over and over again, even though we do see alterations in muscle function in people with low back pain, it had the change in the way that these muscles function doesn't affect their back pain and that when people get out of back pain, it doesn't necessarily change the way these muscles function either, at least in the short term in these studies, right? So what about if we move on to looking at different types of exercise for low back pain, right? My favorite. So let's look at the literature on different types of exercise approaches and see if there's one that seems to be better for back pain. So here's a pretty interesting researcher that I started following last year named Shamsi. He's uh, from Iran, I believe. Uh, they compared core stability and traditional trunk exercises on chronic low back pain using lumbo-pelvic stability tests, which was out, that was the runner stance test, the single leg step test, and the step down test, looking at pelvic control and the ability to control the low back and the pelvis during these movements. And they also measured pain, right? So what they did was they compared core stabilization exercises that focused on transverse muscle, transverse abdominis activation and pelvic tilts and abdominal hollowing to just doing some bridges and doing some bird dogs and doing some crunches and that sort of stuff. And what they found is that there was absolutely no difference in people's pain or the way that they functioned on these visual observations of lumbopelvic control or lumbopelvic stability, which do have quite a bit of error 
because it's using our own eyes to take a look at them and then judging whether or not somebody's stable or not. But the big thing is doesn't seem to be any difference between somebody's improvement in pain between the different exercise approaches here. Then we see Shamsi again the very following year does, the, does another test and also looks at the endurance of core muscles. So we looked at a front plank, a side plank, and a, bri a sustained bridge, and uh, what's called a reverse hyper where you hang onto a table and lift up or what's called the prone instability test, where somebody uses their lumbar extensors to lift up their legs off the ground. You're seeing how long they can hold it. So uh, did the same exact thing with the same approach to transverse abdominus and multifidi-based exercises, abdominal hollowing, pelvic tilts, uh, breathing techniques to activate the transverse abdominus, and then just some general exercises. And Core stability exercise is not more effective than general exercise for improving core stability tests or reducing disability or pain in people with chronic low back pain. They both kind of seem to work, right? Then well, Ben Smith, big systematic review. This is actually an update of a previous systematic review that was published in 2008 where they looked at all of the research published to date on whether or not core stability exercises were better than any other exercise for back pain. British Journal or BMC musculoskeletal skeletal disorders, right? Uh, there is strong evidence stabilization exercises are not more effective than any other form of active exercise in the long term. Further research is unlikely to considerably alter this conclusion. That's a pretty strong statement, right? <laughs> right? He's like, there is so much research to show that core stabilization exercises don't do anything special that we need to stop wasting our time doing core stability research projects and instead maybe spend that time and effort and money going down a different avenue to look at some, some different interventions. And Ben Smith, he's, he's actually a really humble guy. He, he, he's pretty good on interviews. There's some good podcast interviews with him you should take a listen to. So do you even motor control, bro? Like, what about motor control? I'm a little bit of a control freak. Um, Shamsi again right here, looking at specific motor control-based exercises. And again, interventions yielded no significant difference in disability pain or stability indexes between the two groups. And this was going through functional daily activities and exercises while maintaining a neutral spine and transverse abdominus activation. So we were looking at the ability, or they, their exercise intervention was, try, was teaching people to do transverse abdominus based exercises and teaching them to control their pelvis and then taking them through kind of general exercises like bridges or like squats or like bird dogs and comparing that to not training anybody to do the transverse abdominus and just having them do some crunches and some squats and stuff and no difference. Macedo, motor control exercise for acute nonspecific low back pain. Cochrane, that's, that's like a pretty high ranking journal, right? Um, evidence of very low to moderate quality indicate, evidence of very low to moderate quality indicates that motor control exercises show no benefit over spinal manipulation or other forms of exercise or medical treatment in decreasing pain and disability. So, when we look at the data, we kind of see that on average we're, to some degree, striking out with the management of low back pain, right? And I think that the data out there and the statistics don't lie, 
that we spend $600 billion a year in the United States on the direct and indirect management of chronic pain, and that low back pain accounts for 40% of that chronic pain number, right? So that's pretty significant, and we, don't, we, we, we see chronic pain levels going up over time, so maybe some of these interventions like core stability exercises or uh, if you were in my talk previously, dry needling or maybe spinal fusion surgeries and different forms of injections and different this and that. Maybe they're single-factor approaches for a multifactorial problem, and we're kind of missing the boat on a lot of people. So then, Sergiotto, um, I think he's Italian, looked at nonspecific chronic low back pain rather than acute low back pain for motor control. Motor control exercises is probably more effective than nothing for reducing pain, but probably does not have an effect, an important effect on disability in patients with chronic low back pain. So again, something is better than nothing, it seems, usually for decreasing somebody's pain, but it doesn't seem that it's any better than anything else that we've looked at or any other exercise-based intervention. What about Pilates? <laughs> so Yamato did a little systematic review again in the Cochrane database there in 2015. Doesn't seem that there's any evidence for the utilization of Pilates over any other specific type of exercise, but I loved what they put in their conclusion. The decision to use Pilates for low back pain may be based on the patient's or care providers' preferences and costs. What if somebody just really likes Pilates? What if somebody really likes yoga? What if somebody really likes taking a walk around the block or doing CrossFit or whatever it is? If we can get them moving in a graded and progressive manner and decrease their fear, maybe we'll have good outcomes if we match our intervention to their expectations and their desires and their preferences. So I was really excited to see this in the conclusion of their article. What about the mustache, Dr. McGill? Everybody familiar with Dr. McGill? Yeah, no? Okay, big time spinal biomechanics researcher like the dude out of the University of Waterloo in Canada, right? He has done like 97.3% of all the spinal biomechanics research that we have to date. And uh, he's a very intelligent gentleman, but he is very big about core stability. And specifically, what's called the McGill Big Three exercises, where you do side, side planks, a modified crunch, and a bird dog exercise, and you hold each one for five seconds, and you do them X amount of times a day, and that sort of thing. So what we did was we had another study just published a couple of years ago that compared the usage of the McGill Big Three to other general exercise, general strengthening. And the results of this study indicated that McGill stabilization exercises and conventional physiotherapy, eh, about the same, meh. I will say that there was some problems with this study because when you look at the methods, they did not provide the volume of treatment that McGill would with his approach. There was a very low volume treatment that they used for patients because they were trying to standardize total volume between the groups. So there could be some discrepancies there and I just wanted to make sure you guys were aware of that, that this isn't necessarily the pinnacle of how to research McGill's methods. Um, what about subgrouping? I don't know if anybody's familiar with uh, Shirley Sarman. We'll look at the movement systems impairments approach or whatever it's called. Uh, what's that? That's my alma mater. Oh, St. Louis University, or Washington University in St. Louis, right? Okay, 
So if we look at subclassification based on specific movement control exercises, they say are superior to general exercises. They say it right in the title, but what they show in their data is that, yes, it had a 1.9 points greater change in the Roland Mullerin disability questionnaire, except for the only problem is the clinical, clinical meaningful difference is three. So their title and their abstract does not actually match their statistics. And we're going to see that a few times. I'm going, to pull, I'm going to pull up another article here in a second where the findings and the conclusions that the authors propose don't necessarily match their statistics. And I do that, I did it in the dry needling lecture as well, just to say that we can't come away with a good idea of what the literature says unless we're actually looking at the studies and their methods and seeing if they match the statistics and seeing what the design of the study was and seeing if it actually has any merit, right? A huge confounder in this study is that for the general exercise, they just gave them some exercises and said, all right, guys, let's work out. For the movement control systems impairments type of exercise, if you guys are familiar with that, it has to do with a lot of one-on-one -on -one direct interaction with the therapist and the patient, a lot of manual physical contact, a lot of giving them feedback on how to activate muscles. So you get a dramatically different therapeutic relationship or therapeutic ritual like we talked about last um, talk, and it still didn't really show that much of a difference, right? So we could possibly say that that difference that we did see could be the fact that they essentially got A plus B versus A because they got exercises plus interaction and manual contact and feedback on the exercises rather than do these exercises and we'll follow up in 12 weeks. So when abstracts lead you astray, Chang in 2015, Core Strength Training for Patients with Chronic Low Back Pain, Journal of Physical Therapy Science. All of the core strength training strategies examined in the studies assist in the alleviation of chronic low back pain. However, we recommend focusing on training the deep trunk muscles to alleviate chronic low back pain. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Direct quote from their results section. According to the visual analog scale in the McGill Pain Questionnaire, results of these studies, pain was reduced following core strength training although not statistically significant, then significantly different than any of the control groups. So why did they say in their conclusions, which most clinicians are just going to read that abstract and see the conclusions that deep muscle training, core muscle training is better, would they, why would they say that when their own statistics, their own analysis doesn't show that? And then you look at it. <laughs> so that was my face when I read this study. I completely nick-caged it. All of the control groups in the four reference studies performed typical resistance training, right? So they were just doing some squats and some straight leg raises and push-ups, like hands elevated push-ups, and that worked just as good as core stability exercises, core focused exercises. So the next time somebody talks about core, I want you to give them that look, okay? <laughs> so what do we actually see in people with back pain, right? Hodges, you guys remember his name, 1996, transverse abdominus delayed firing? Well, he's done a lot of research since then that is really good quality, that has given us a lot more nuance in how we look at back pain. And what we see is that people have increased stiffness. Marcos referenced earlier Tasha Stanton's work that people perceive a greater degree of stiffness, whether or not they actually have true mechanically based increases in stiffness. Lamoth 
say, Vanderhoorn, decreased variability in walking. We have multiple studies that show that we have decreased variability in walking, so we have less trunk movement, less trunk rotation, less pelvic sway, a lot more uh, kind of tightness and rigidity while walking. Follow 2014, increased muscle activity and decreased variability with lifting items from the floor or off of an elevated surface. Saying 2017, less variability in forward bending. Hernandez, less lumbar movement and decreased variability, increased stiffness. So we're consistently seeing this theme of people with persistent low back pain having less variability in movement, more rigidity around their trunk, which kind of flies in the face of the fact that maybe they need more stability, right? They're super stable. They don't move. They don't do anything, right? So I love this quote from uh, Carton Vibe Fursum. If he's, a, he's a napropath, I believe, in the Netherlands. If people in pain walk like a walking plank, don't put them in a plank, okay? They're stiff. They don't have variability. Why would doing a plank increase or decrease their pain or help them? If pain and muscle guarding serve in protective roles of the body, should we be giving everybody core stability exercises? And Kate already talked about the narratives that we tell to our patients and the, the impact that they can have on their thoughts and their beliefs and subsequently their outcomes, right? So we know that fear avoidance and pain catastrophization automatically and, and uh, decreased uh, engagement and activity lead to long-term pain. You have a way higher likelihood of developing chronic and persisting pain if, you, if these things are present. So the narrative of core stability or an unstable spine is one that we should be really careful to propagate to our patients. We should be really careful to propagate that to our family and our colleagues. This is something that probably should die off at some point because lumbar spines aren't very unstable. In fact, they're like super strong. I don't, like, you remember cadaver lab? How many ligaments and how many muscles and how many uh, discs are connecting those things and how incredibly strong they are? So maybe they're not unstable. So take home message for people with back pain. People with chronic back pain appear to move differently. That's what we do know. Their muscles seem to function a little bit differently. The odds are that this is actually a result of the pain, probably not a cause of the pain, right? Less variation, different muscle patterning, but probably an effect rather than a cause. This is part of the protective response that we see when somebody has pain. So what do we do for back pain, right? Because I'm just up here just crushing everything and saying everything stinks. Well, do core exercises, do Pilates, do yoga, lift weights, walk, run, do CrossFit. I don't care. Get people moving. Make them confident in their body's ability to move. Make them confident in their robustness and their resiliency. Maybe we get them moving in a way that is uh, enjoyable to them and they reduce their sensory discriminative, discriminative mismatch. Maybe they reorganize their cortex. Maybe over the course of engaging in exercise, they increase their gray matter in certain areas of the brain because we know that gray matter thickness decreases with persistent pain. Maybe they normalize their understanding and control of their low back and maybe that's why some core exercises work because they focus a lot on pelvic tilts and, and focusing very intently on a specific area which gives a lot of feedback and might help to reorganize the cortex. But we must reframe what we say. If you change nothing, nothing will change, right? 
the enduring impact of what clinicians say to their patients. I think I've seen this study referenced like six times this weekend. I have a man crush on Ben Darlow. This dude puts out some good stuff, all right? Healthcare professionals have a considerable and enduring influence upon the attitude and beliefs of people with low back pain. It's important that this opportunity is used to positively influence attitudes and beliefs, probably not telling them that their spine is unstable. So qualitative work that has looked at what patients think when we tell them their spine is unstable is literally, it's like a stack of Jenga blocks. And that's why I put that picture up here at the very beginning. And that's why our safety word is Jenga block spine, okay? This is an actual quote from this actual article that is a, again, a qualitative, not quantitative, study by Ben Darlow. I've been tested by various different physios and pilates, and I'm apparently ridiculously weak. I had an abortion because I didn't think I could have a baby. I didn't think I could handle it, carrying it, and having extra weight on my stomach. This is a real quote from a real patient. I gave a presentation similar to this before, and afterwards I got hate mail for putting this slide up because they said that this person that had this quote was clearly crazy, they were an anomaly, they were an outlier, and you can't make a point by posting a statement from an outlier. And I said, well, they're a human being, and that's what they said, so that's important. And then within 24 hours, I got six private messages from women confirming that they have either decided to have their tubes tied, decided to have an hysterectomy, decided to have an abortion or decided to never have kids because they were worried that it would be too much on their unstable spine. So those five to six responses within 24 hours of me posting this quote out there for people to see uh, gave a little bit more weight to the fact that this might be a real thought that actually is, is present in a lot of people's heads no matter how um, much we might think that it's outlandish or an outlier or something like that. Okay. Uh, if we don't investigate what our patients really think and believe, how would we know? And if we don't ask them to relay back to us what they heard from us, how do we know what we said was, how do we know how that was perceived? Easy to harm, hard to heal. There's my boy Darlow again. Negative assumptions about the back made by those with low back pain may affect information processing during an episode of pain. This may result in an intentional bias, indicating that the spine is vulnerable. Guess what? This leads to worse outcomes. I have a list of about 27 studies that I cite during a nocebo lecture that all show that the language that we use and fear avoidance beliefs and pain catastrophizing in patients that comes from either society, their family, or their medical providers, or their friends, directly impact their outcomes and their degree of disability and the intensity that they rate their pain. Right? If, if we do think of pain as some sort of protective response that the body has to keep us safe, would it not make sense that if we are fearful, we would have more pain because in the event of fear, we must protect ourselves to a greater degree, right? So if we are imparting fear into our patients, then we are essentially giving them fuel to intensify their protective response. So what's the take-home message about back pain? There is no magic treatment for back pain that works for everybody, unfortunately, because everybody's experience of pain is unique to them. It is the lived experience of pain that is unique to the human that is experiencing it. So it could have multiple, infinite contributors that's different from person to person. Lots of different types of exercise have a positive effect on back pain. 
And that's probably just because exercise is good and movement is good. And uh, as Kate mentioned in her talk, we're trying to move away from calling things exercise so much because it has a little bit of a negative stigma with some people. They really don't like the idea of exercise. They don't want to do exercise. But people do like to have fun. And they might be open to moving. So maybe reframing that in the way that we convey it to people could be important. Nothing's, no one thing seems to be superior. Focus on the human being, not just the back, right? There's somebody attached to that spine. And that spine can't feel anything without their brain, right? No brain, no pain. Exercise that people enjoy and is easy for them to do will probably get done. And that's probably going to have a greater positive impact. Consider a rehab program combining different types of exercises. Maybe look at a lot of different variability. Train somebody in endurance or, or strength or in flexibility or fluidity of movement, right? Maybe get them moving in lots of different ways so they become a movement master. They take all their movement vitamins and they get really robust and really strong and really confident. Structural factors such as lumbar lordosis, pelvic tilt, leg length discrepancy, and muscle length are not likely to be associated with low back pain, but if one leg is longer, you will run faster. Ask Usain Bolt. <laughs> Positive effects from exercise for low back pain may not be directly attributable to measures such as strength, mobility, or endurance. So we see a lot of people getting better with lots of different exercise interventions and their strength doesn't necessarily change or their endurance doesn't necessarily change but there's also confounding vari variables because we know that pain inhibits muscle force production so we can measure somebody that has pain and they have decreased muscle force production and then when we get done we measure them and they have increased strength and we could throw on our post hoc caps and say that their strength increase in strength is what got their back pain better when it might be the fact that their back pain be getting better allowed them to have a greater force production in the muscles around the trunk, right? We don't know. Decreasing stiffness, perceived stiffness, and promoting freedom and variability of movement may be a good goal in rehab, especially with people displaying kinesiophobia, right? So this cycles all the way back around to what Marcos was talking about with sensory discriminative changes in how we can go about retraining those. He talked about manual interventions to retrain those in graded motor imagery, but exercise is a pretty dang good way for somebody to learn how to explore their body and get a ton of proprioceptive feedback, which might help to restructure that cortical map. People who feel they need to protect their backs can also, they have worse outcomes. Like I've already mentioned, fear avoidance and catastrophizing, you have worse outcomes. So. We're going to get out of here early today, and there's all those resources or references. Does anybody have any questions? Yes, ma'am. So it seems like I'm not a physical It would be my personal advice to avoid back braces at all costs because it would facilitate a decrease in movement or a mobilization that we know restructures the cortex in a negative manner and leads to possibly a negative feedback loop that intensifies the amount of mechanically mediated nociceptors present in a tissue. So if you don't move very much, you can actually re-align uh, the ion channels on your nociceptive nerve endings that lead to a greater influx of uh, you know, potassium and calcium and all that sort of stuff, which conveys more nociception to the brain. So you have this negative feedback loop where if you don't move much, you learn to perceive a smaller amount of movement after that. I would be, I would be concerned about dependency on 
on a brace or something like that because we're facilitating the idea that they are unstable and that they're weak and that they need some sort of outside help um, when in fact that, that's probably not what's going on and they already have decreased variability of movement. They have really strong muscles around their core that are creating an inherent human back brace to begin with. So that would be my personal uh, opinion on that, but I don't think that that has specifically been well-researched, so I can't give you a definitive uh, evidence-based answer other than looking at biological plausibility from all the other things that we've been talking about. Does anybody else have any questions? Yeah, dancing is movement, and it's social interaction, right? Yeah. So we know that people with persistent pain actually uh, retract socially, and we know that social isolation is extremely uh, damaging to uh, psychological health as far as depression and anxiety go. And we know depression and anxiety directly connect to uh, pain. So if you have a social endeavor that you can go out and enjoy, and especially one that's a movement practice, you, there's probably going to be few things that are better for quote-unquote nonspecific back pain, right? Yes, sir. I don't know how many. Yeah. And, and that, that's a loophole for insurance fraud. And that's something that legislatively we, we should probably all band together to maybe get changed. Medicare fraud that's under back. Yeah. yeah. You're required to do a face-to-face. And there's no real evidence to support it either. It's, it's somebody has found out that an insurance company will pay for it. So uh, they're going to charge $3,000 for a, a $50 piece of equipment and laugh all the way to the bank, right? Sorry for my cynicism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not envious of primary care physicians and, and what you have to go through with the management of patients' care and the, and the responsibility of having to give your signature, your sign-off on all these things like that and and the paperwork. You know, I'm, I'm not envious at all, uh, but that's why I hope we can all band together to educate as many people as we can so this stuff starts decreasing over time, right? Uh, you know, it's an, it's an uphill battle, but there's strength in numbers, and the hope is that one day there's a tipping point, and hopefully that tipping point is sooner rather than later, and that's why I wanted to get involved with this conference, because I think that this conference is trying to do that. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you know, you have to do it delicately. You have to make sure you, that you validate a patient's beliefs or experiences before you go about any sort of maybe de-education. So uh, it, it's probably first building a relationship with that patient and um, not necessarily buying into or confirming their beliefs about core instability or the diastasis recti uh, with their low back pain. Um, and then slowly changing the narrative around that pain is a little bit more complex and hey I know that you just you, you just had a baby and that was a lot of stress on your body and you're also probably sleeping less at this point and you know maybe the way that your body is functioning uh, hormonally and neurologically and immunologically is a little bit different and all these things can feed into the fact that you're having back pain now um, and, and broadening their perspective uh, on what back pain is so they don't develop um, a, fear, a, f a fearful uh, mental narrative about the diastasis recti uh, because I, I might be wrong, but uh, the literature that I've seen on it shows very little correlation to the presence of diastasis recti and back pain. 
and uh, and you might be able to correct me. Right, and and, and I may be wrong on this as well, but our ability to, uh, without surgery, resolve diastasis recti has been pretty questionable as well, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the worst things that we can do is as soon as somebody says, well, you know, it's because my spine is unstable, and say, no, you're completely wrong. Spinal instability has nothing to do with back pain because you've just lost your opportunity to make a connection with this person, and you experience what's called the backfire effect, right, which is a psychological principle in which people cling more tightly to their narratives when they encounter information that opposes it. Uh, so building a relationship and, and maybe the yes and approach where, yes, that's probably one small component of this, but let's look at all these other components that could, pro that could be playing a role as well in tipping you out of homeostatic balance or, it, you know, whichever philosophy or theory of our experience of pain that you subscribe to, whether it's uh, allostatic loading or Bayesian modeling and predictive processing or whatever it is, you know, uh, all the different layers of complexity that could be going into that experience. And so, so helping people understand that um, pain isn't a purely biomedical uh, phenomenon or is, isn't a sensation, it's an experience, is, is probably the route that we need to go. And that's probably not going to happen in one visit for most people. And that's why it's really good to have uh, a network of providers kind of having a common language around this, this whole idea of pain or back pain or whatever it may be. And I'm sorry I don't have a good answer, a definitive answer. Anybody else? All right. Giga Maggie's.